Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, a special Halloween edition of Cityscape. Coming up, a theater production in Brooklyn takes people to hell and back for $25. A New York City author introduces us to a pair of 19th century sisters who claimed they communicated with the dead. And later, a sneak preview of the giant puppets that will lead this year's Village Halloween Parade. Stick around, you're in for quite the treat on Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. The phrase, go to hell, isn't a very nice one, but it's taking on new meaning in Brooklyn. The theater company Les Fres Corbusier is putting on a Christian evangelical house of horrors at St. Anne's Warehouse in Dumbo. They're working from a real script from a production originally put on in Texas. So-called hell houses are designed to drive home the message that sin has consequences. And perhaps surprisingly, New York's production is an irony-free recreation. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I've been expecting you. We're all going to have so much fun tonight here in our hell house. My name's Alex Timbers, and I'm the director of Hell House. Let's get this party started, huh? We had seen the 2004 Los Angeles production, Hollywood Hell House, which is the first non-evangelical haunted house, and we were shocked and horrified at the source material, but weren't so impressed with the actual production of it because it was comedic and we felt like it was very hard to separate the producer's politics from the politics of the piece. So we felt like it was a really important thing to be done in New York for people to sort of understand what's happening in the reddest of the reddest states, but that it was important to do it earnestly in a non-judgmental fashion so people can draw their own conclusions. Meet my old pal Jeremy. I gave him his first taste of the occult when he was reading Goosebumps. Then he moved on to Harry Potter. There's a scene that is uh, not specifically Columbine, but everything sort of suggests that it is, and it's a young guy named Jeremy who uh, is wearing a black trench coat and eyeliner and a Megadeth T-shirt, and he's had enough, and his fellow classmates are making fun of him, and he pulls out a gun, and he shoots all of them, including the teacher, and then kills himself. Come on, Jeremy! What do all those heavy metal songs tell you to We are gathered here tonight in front of these witnesses to make a complete and total mockery of the sacred marriage vows. <laughs> the gay marriage scene is two men who are getting married in front of sort of a gazebo. The demon tour guide who takes you through the hell house is officiating the marriage and he sort of turns it into a mockery. And then a turntable that they're on, the gazebo rotates to reveal this sort of apartment that sort of looks like it's been bombed out and you see one of the members of the couple in a hospital gurney and the other tending to him and he's got lesions on his arms and he's clearly dying of AIDS and these demon imps jump into the picture and start torturing the man. Demons of darkness! Let's have ourselves a little gay pride parade! I've never been a part of a show before where you actually, you can perceive parody by the perspective you go in with. So if you're a, you know, a 20-something hipster from Williamsburg, you're probably laughing at everything that's happening and not taking it very seriously. But if you're a Upper West Sider in your 40s that reads The New Yorker, you're much more sort of taken back by the politics, and I think there isn't really a grin on your face. Demon <laughs> 
There's nothing cool in the bowels of hell! Murderers, rapists, thieves, and non-believers are all equal in the eyes of God and in tonight's hell house. Take note of these lessons, young ones, because just like these three, you will not be laughing much longer either. Oh no! Not where you're headed! Alex Timbers is the director of Hell House at St. Anne's Warehouse in Dumbo, Brooklyn. After exploring the depths of hell myself, I asked other people who ventured into Satan's lair what they thought of the production. My name is Sarah Durkee. I'm from Manhattan. It was a fascinating and perfectly realized recreation of it, and I'm, I'm so glad they didn't choose to be a parody or ironic. It was just a great window into just exactly what you know what's being taught and what and what kind of fear mongering is at the root of it and a doctor in a yamaka in the evil scene about the about the aids guy going to hell because he deserved it it's shocking and great and funny and everything it should be i, I thought it was great and important to see we new yorkers and nor, you know we we blue state people in general don't really have a clue to what's going on out there my name is caitlin mcgee and i'm from newton massachusetts it was very important that they did everything completely how it would be done. A parody wouldn't have been as powerful. It was funny, but at the same time, it was just kind of mind-boggling that people really do think like that, especially coming from Massachusetts. Like, most of my best friends are gay. I'm in theater. That's, it's, just, it's just funny the way that they think. My name is Paul Jacobs from the island of Manhattan. <laughs> to a certain extent, I think that... Uh, <laughs> We're somewhat preaching to the choir here because the people who are coming to see this, I think, have an overview and, and have a lot of experience with stepping back from society's roles and experience with comedy and satire. The unfortunate thing is that the people who need to see this the most will not, will not get it. And uh, as a person who grew up Jewish, to see that um, anti-Semitism is just so alive and well in the church uh, is pretty horrible. My name is Alex Brooks. I'm from Brooklyn, Park Slope. Uh, I thought it was an amazing show. I mean, it's like pretty much based on the same words that the evangelical guy used, but taken in a completely different way. Scary at times, but entertaining, for sure. When you say it was scary at times, what do you think made it scary? Hmm. Uh, just, like, the fact that people believe this, you know. I mean, scary that it can be taken the opposite way. My name is Benny Amtakola. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. I thought the... Uh the fact that it was satire uh, is completely subjective, you know. We thought it was satire because for our, you know, our view coming from our viewpoint, but I'm sure other people would find it very realistic on um, those people. I've, I'm sad for them. <laughs> the people that this is geared toward, the demographic that is geared toward, they they know of them, but they don't really deal with them because they don't agree with them in any way. And uh, and that's completely the reason why we saw it as satirical. And another person might see it as you know life changing or you know some sort of salvation in and of itself. If you want to form your own opinion, act fast. Hell will soon freeze over. The production ends its three week run in Brooklyn tomorrow night. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. 
1848, two sisters from upstate New York claim to have communicated with the dead. Kate and Maggie Fox are considered the founders of modern spiritualism, a movement whose followers believe the spirits of the dead can make contact with the living. Their story is recounted in the book Talking to the Dead, Kate and Maggie Fox and the Rise of Spiritualism. Joining me now to talk about it is the book's author, Barbara Weisberg. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. When did the Fox sisters first appear on your radar screen? The Fox sisters first appeared on my radar screen probably in the mid-90s when actually I read about them for the first time. And I was amazed that I hadn't heard about them before because here were these two young girls, teenagers, who basically started a movement mid-19th century that's still with us today. So I was quite fascinated in finding out more about who they were, what their story was, and whether or not they really communicated with the dead as they claimed. What was the climate like in the mid-19th century that helped to contribute to this growth of spiritualism? Well, I think you really had couple of different forces operating. It was a time of tremendous interest in reform movements. You had abolition, you had women's suffrage. So people were really questioning all kinds of laws on earth. And I think uh, they were also beginning to question uh, what exactly happened in heaven. And some of, I think, what also influenced the movement were uh, all the scientific discoveries that were happening at the time. Railroads were new, photography was new, the telegraph was new. It almost seemed as if anything could be possible. So why not communication with the spirits? Attitudes toward death were different in the early 19th century compared to the mid-19th century, correct? Yes. Your attitudes in the early 19th century were much more conventional in terms of religious thinking. People anticipated that they would either go to heaven or hell. You obviously hoped that good deeds would get you to the right place, but there was not um, the kind of certainty that people were longing for uh, to know, you know, what would happen to them. There was also, though, one of the things that was was happening was tremendous, tremendous interest in religion at the time, um, great religious enthusiasm where people were beginning to feel that they had more control over their destiny than had been true in the past. Some of that was influenced by the fact that the whole country was opening up. People were on the move. People were setting out as pioneers to to cross the continent. And there was, I think, a great sense of wanting to control their own destiny and wanting to believe that if they did the right thing, they would wind up in heaven and not hell. Let's get back to these two sisters, Maggie and Kate Fox. They were very young when they said that they were communicating with the spirits. How old were they exactly? Kate was about 11 and Maggie was just about 14 years old. And there are people who, of course, associate ghosts and poltergeists very much with teenagers today. You can see it in the novels of Stephen King. Carrie is, is of course, the famous one where uh, puberty is associated with all sorts of flying furniture. That wasn't so much true back in the mid-19th century. 
And one of the things people said about these young women was that they were so young, they were so inexperienced, they were so innocent. It was impossible that what they were doing could be fraud. It was impossible that they would be sophisticated enough to trick huge audiences because they were so young. Explain the process by which these girls communicated with the dead. What happened was that people began to hear strange raps in the presence of these two young girls. And those who heard the raps started to ask questions of this invisible rapper. Questions like, how old am I? And the invisible rapper would rap out the correct answer. How many children do I have? The invisible rapper would wrap out the correct answer. And it was assumed that either this invisible rapper who seemed to have all the right answers was a spirit or was these little girls finding some way to make strange noises. So people began to investigate, how could these girls be making these kinds of strange noises? And they subjected the children to all sorts of tests, which at the time people thought of as very highly scientific, things like holding their knees to see whether uh, they were somehow managing to click their joints and make noises that way. So it started with rapping. But it very quickly moved into other kinds of manifestations. Chairs would go flying around. Tables would levitate. You would begin to have apparitions, a floating hand. You'd begin to get mysterious music when apparently there was no violin or guitar in the room. How could these children be doing that? But no one could conclusively say that they were doing it on their own. Remarkably, the sisters themselves at various points in their lives confessed to levels of fraud. Their confessions were often confused. Uh, They would say, well, we had accomplices who helped us make the furniture fly, but the wrapping really was made by the spirits. So the kids basically confessed to some fraud, but not to all fraud. In terms of actually being caught out in fraud, many, many mediums of the day were trapped with noisemakers attached to the bottom of their skirts. People would hold their feet to be sure that they weren't making noises with their feet. And many mediums would load up shoes with, with lead and people would find they were holding shoes. So many mediums were caught in fraud. The Fox sisters really never were. The other mediums of the day, did they follow Kate and Maggie Fox? Or did Kate and Maggie Fox come first and everyone sought to mimic them? Kate and Maggie Fox absolutely started the popular interest in spiritualism that began with the raps that happened in their home. And actually, let me just digress a moment. The first raps that we attribute to spiritualism happened in a little town in upstate New York in a place called Hydesville. In 1848, March 31st, it was the eve of 
April Fool's Day. And that was the first time the raps were heard in the presence of Kate and Maggie Fox. There had been other talk of spirits before the Fox sisters. Um, Someone like Andrew Jackson Davis, also um, an upstate New York character, if you were, uh, was considered a seer, a visionary, someone who could see spirits. But what was unusual about Kate and Maggie was that there were these raps and people besides Kate and Maggie could hear them. People besides Kate and Maggie could interpret what the raps were saying. So that the phenomenon of a physical manifestation produced by a supposed spirit, I think, was pretty new to Kate and Maggie. What happened, though, was that many of the mediums who followed Kate and Maggie went beyond them, not just in the kinds of manifestations that occurred, but also in what they would talk about. Kate and Maggie were pretty non-political in the messages that they said the spirits communicated. Kate and Maggie would talk about the other world as being a comforting place. They would talk about your relatives as being happy. Other mediums who followed, uh, sometimes they'd be trans speakers so that there would be no raps at all, but often would communicate political messages. A lot of mediums um, communicated abolitionist sentiments. Some communicated suffrage, women's suffrage sentiments. So some of the mediums who followed Kate and Maggie became very political. Seems like an interesting way to get your message across if that's what you believed in. Exactly. And to say that it was coming from the spirits, not from them at all. Kate and Maggie were born in Canada but they were raised in upstate New York. They're buried here in New York City. Kate and Maggie lived uh, probably the last half of their lives in New York City. They moved around in the city and had different apartments, but they were basically based here for substantial amounts of time. Kate actually did live for a time in England, and Kate uh, married an Englishman. But when when he passed away, she moved back here with her children. And their plots are out in Brooklyn, right? Yes. Kate and Maggie are buried in Brooklyn in one cemetery. They were buried together. And in another cemetery uh, is their older sister. Kate and Maggie had an older sister. She was, I think, some 20 years older than Maggie. And her name was Leah. And Leah is often considered the girl's impresario. She realized very quickly that these two young girls were astonishing. And Leah swept down. She was living um, in a different city from the girls when the first raps were heard, and she swept down and basically took them back to the city where she was living, which was Rochester, and began to promote them to introduce them to her friends, to have the girls put on demonstrations of the spirit for her friends. And Leah really helped create an audience for her very talented baby sisters. The book is Talking to the Dead, Kate and Maggie Fox and the Rise of Spiritualism. Barbara Weisberg, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 
One of the highlights of the fall is the Village Halloween Parade. If you've ever seen the procession, you know that hundreds of costumed performers, musicians, and revelers are led by a group of giant, elaborate puppets. While those puppets come to life on the streets of Manhattan, they're constructed upstate in an abandoned barn along the Hudson River. We recently traveled to meet the couple behind the Halloween Parade's unique creations. My name is Sophia Michaelis. Right now I live about 100 miles north of New York City. We're here at the shop of Superior Concept Monsters. We design and build giant puppets that lead the Halloween Parade in New York City, as well as other events. Uh, my name's Alex Kahn, and I've lived in this area on and off since I was 10 years old. So I grew up here, uh, Red Hook, New York, uh, 100 miles north of New York City. I've been working with the Halloween Parade on and off since 1991. Uh, but Sophie and I started working together in 98, and that was kind of a big year. It was the 25th anniversary for the Halloween parade. And uh, to celebrate that anniversary, we built these gigantic uh, caterpillars that celebrated the act of metamorphosis by transforming into these huge lunamoths who would spread their wings, and their wings became a shadow puppet stage, and it was very elaborate. Um, and up to that point, we really I hadn't really designed anything uh, very large for the parade. So we kind of began uh, Superior Concept Monsters that year as a way of kind of saying that there is original, interesting processional artwork that leads the parade every year. And it has a name, and there's a specific group of artists that come and go that are, are associated with that ensemble. This year, the, the official theme is Village Hearth, um, and we're manifesting that theme through a performance uh, that we call Jack, very simply. So we've taken this trope of the jack-o'-lantern that everybody knows. I mean, it's all over Walmart, and you know, it's the classic Halloween image, probably above all. And we've gone back to the Celtic roots of that tradition. Uh, jack-o'-lanterns first uh, appeared growing out of a Celtic ritual called Samhain, which was a ritual in which on the last day of the harvest, everybody in the village would extinguish their hearths and they let the fire go out. And then they would have this one great fire that everybody from the village would attend. And they would carry an ember from that fire back to the hearth and rekindle it for the coming year. So how do you carry an ember from one giant fire to a bunch of little home fires? You plop it into some kind of hollowed out vegetable. Uh, in this case, it was most often a turnip. Uh, and then you carve openings in the turnip so you can see your way home in the dark. Um, and out of that tradition grew the jack-o'-lantern. So what we plan to do is have a great fire pot leading the parade with these silken flames coming out of it. And at a certain moment, the fire pot will stop the flames will, will jut out from the uh, opening of the fire pot, and the, these nine giant jack-o'-lanterns will gather around and peer into the flames. And suddenly their heads will glow with the light of the fire, or, or with 12-volt you know, compact fluorescent bulbs, as the case may be. They will then spin outward towards the audience, carrying the embers of the communal fire to a larger ring of smaller pumpkin lantern bearers, who will then erupt into a jig-like dance, and they themselves will you know, metaphorically spread the spirit of the embers outward towards the audience. That's how we sort of want to reenact the, the Celtic origins of the lantern, because it really is its a powerful metaphor. You know, everybody pulling embers from the same fire, but using them in very individualized ways. 
So this is the one of the nine uh, giant jack-o'-lanterns that will be surrounding the cauldron of fire. And uh, it's a standard design that we use. It's a backpack where the spine of the puppeteer is extended and becomes the spine of the puppet. Uh, it's a one-person puppet. There are kind of these beanpole operation uh, stays for the hands, and then the head uh, can rock back and forth, and it can also, um, can also light up. Um, and the lighting up is really key because, you know, we build into each procession an element of performance that cycles throughout the parade. It repeats itself about a dozen times. So when the flames of the cauldron flame up, the heads will alight, and the whole thing will be this very direct metaphor of the light passing from one place to another. It has this viney-like motion that if you've ever seen 1920s, like Betty Boop cartoons or like uh, Merry Melodies where the entire world is dancing to Benny Goodman and all of their limbs are like rubber. That's kind of the quality that these puppets have. So um, this is the innards of the fire cauldron. We have an a antique industrial uh, Dayton fan here. And this is going to sit on the inside of the giant fire pot. Um, and at a certain moment... It turns on, and uh, flames of silk are going to uh, sail into the air, kind of like giant wind socks, and they're going to be lit from the perimeter of the cauldron. These are part of our perennial puppet. They've, they've joined the ranks of the perennial puppets. These are uh, bat puppets made out of old umbrellas. Um, the, the umbrella forms the wing, the wings of the bats, and they're on the top of long poles. And so the puppeteer would pull a string, and the wings flap. And they have these great sort of foam, little scary foam heads. When they're at their best, they they act as a single puppet you know, with multiple uh, entities within it, but it's really a swarm of bats. That's the puppet. These are sort of flat trees made out of Primex, and they are illuminated from the inside, and they are articulated, sort of like those little wooden puppets that you'll pull a string and the two arms go up and the two legs go up. So they have a really simple movement. We're going into um, sort of a little mini apartment that's attached to our shop. And it used to be, when, when our shop was a, a cow barn, this is the milk house. So it was a, uh, it basically was a sort of bunker-like refrigerator where the milk was stored. Um, but now it's a, we're standing in this warm, cozy kitchen, uh, which is really great to have when it's bitter cold and damp outside. <laughs> We're standing in front of a long table right now that has about 24 bright orange pumpkin lanterns that we made from the real pumpkins. And some, some have already been pulled off their molds and others are still on their molds. So these are going to have just a little opening, very discreet in the top. And uh, this is a little doorway through which you can pop in one of these tiny little LED lights. There we go. So fold this back. 
This is a light that just snaps on and snaps off. Pop it in there. So, and that's what it'll look like in the parade. This will this will look great times 24 on 6th Avenue. The Halloween parade goes up 6th Avenue and starts at about Spring Street. We arrive early in the morning. We'll leave here around 7, get there around 9. We rent a big truck and we unload all the puppets. So it's pretty quiet when we get there in the morning. And then as the day progresses, more and more people start arriving. By that time, all of these other individual costume people, musicians, those things are going crazy. And there's this sort of crescendo, which is almost my favorite part of Halloween. For us, it gets pretty crazy. We're running around talking to the 200 people who are arriving and talking to some other people who maybe shouldn't be there or trying to redirect them or trying to convince them that they really do want to be a penguin because our penguin people have just disappeared. Mm. (laughs) You know, stilt walkers are getting up on stilts and the other puppets are kind of appearing and sort of taking their first steps. There is this sense of this mass is kind of rising up and and the musicians are playing and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then at 7 o'clock the parade starts up 6th Avenue. You know, no matter what we do, when those 13 or 14 or 40 or however many people get together, some gestalt uh, persona is going to be created in the puppet that we have little or no control over and really can't anticipate. And it's a magical thing to watch, I mean, to watch these creations come to life. That's Sophia Mechahelis and Alex Kahn of Superior Concept Monsters. If you want to see the giant fire pot, swarm of bats, and all of the other puppets in this year's parade, be sure to head out to the West Village on Halloween night. The festivities get underway at 7 o'clock. That's all for the special edition of Cityscape. While Halloween falls on a Tuesday this year, there are tons of related activities taking place all throughout the weekend. We hope you get out there and enjoy yourself. And remember, you can always find archived versions of Cityscape as well as our podcast at WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a happy Halloween. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The South Street Seaport Museum features a fleet of historic vessels that includes the 1911 sailing ship Peking. It's one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. More information at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.